Welcome parents, teachers, nannies, grandmas, and everybody else who's streaming us. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. And I'm your host, Drew Nash, coming to you from One to One Pediatrics in Danville, California. This is episode 115. We have an information-packed show for you today. Dr. Marianne Borden returns to the show for Pediatric Potpourri Part 2, where we will discuss common pediatric illnesses that parents have to deal with. We will go into detail about how things present, what symptoms to look for, and what you as parents can do at home to help your child through things. We will also discuss when an office visit might be needed or helpful. So stay tuned for some interesting and helpful information. In addition, we'll continue the segment, Pediatric Fun Facts. And at the end of the show, I'll answer a question from a listener. The audience for the show continues to grow, but since I'm always trying to build our listener base, I'm calling on you to spread the word. Tell your friends, neighbors, the UPS delivery person, people you pass on the street, and anybody you know who might like listening to us all about the show. Follow us on whatever platform you use to hear us so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. In addition, we're on Facebook at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, post a question to be answered on the show, or even tell your parenting horror story. If there's a topic you just can't wait to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. Also, I've started posting information, photos, and videos on there to add a visual component to some of our segments. So check it out and like us. And now for the perpetually boring disclaimer. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. Before we go any further, it's time for pediatric fun facts. Each week, I bring to you an interesting pediatric factoid or historical item that you probably didn't know and might not believe. My head is buzzing with these things and I'm hoping to settle it down by sharing some with you. So let's get to it. Pediatric Fun Facts. Did you know that what a mother eats may affect how well a baby sleeps? Yes, this can be true. Different foods in a mother's diet can affect the amounts of certain proteins and amino acids in the breast milk. This difference, in turn, can result in a baby sleeping better or less well, depending on what the mom eats. Now, the science is a little soft here, so follow me on this. We all know that eating certain foods can make us more sleepy. With Thanksgiving approaching, we are all familiar with taking a nap after eating that big turkey dinner or leftover turkey the next day. Turkey, in particular, has a very high level of tryptophan, an amino acid. Tryptophan is a precursor of melatonin, the hormone that our brain produces to help us fall asleep and stay asleep. So, the hypothesis as to why we get sleepy after eating Thanksgiving dinner is that after taking in a large load of tryptophan, our brains produce extra melatonin, so we get sleepy. 
But does tryptophan on a baby's diet make them sleep well too? Well, this is something that I actually helped work on in the early 1980s. When I was in high school, I volunteered at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston working with the nursing staff. In between my shifts working there, I also volunteered as a research assistant with Dr. Michael Yogman, who was a pediatrician there who also was a colleague of T. Barry Brazelton, the famous developmental pediatrician and author of dozens of books and articles. The research study was designed to figure out if diet affected a newborn sleep pattern. It was set up as follows. We would identify newborn babies who were bottle fed, which was a rarity in the early 80s. When such a baby was born, I would get notified and then I would go meet the baby's parents and ask them if they were willing to have their baby participate in the study. Now imagine this, a squeaky voice 16-year-old pre-med wannabe, me, going into the room of a newborn's mom and asking if I could borrow their hours-old baby for three hours or so to feed them and watch them sleep. I don't think that would go over well these days, but in 1982, people didn't really have a problem with it. Most of the time, the mom said yes. So here's what I had to do. I would take them into a dark room off the well baby nursery and feed them a baby bottle that consisted of one of three solutions. Solution one was a glucose water solution with a high concentration of valine, an amino acid and precursor of the neurotransmitter serotonin. Solution two was a glucose water solution with a high concentration of tryptophan, the precursor of melatonin. Or number three, the solution was a regular baby formula. After feeding the baby the two ounce bottle, I would swaddle the newborn, put him or her in the bassinet, and then sit there and watch them. For the next three hours, a cassette recorder would make a soft beep every minute. With each beep, I would have to score the child's level of alertness on a scale of one to six, where one was awake and crying, two was awake and slightly fussy, three was awake and quiet, four was drowsy, five was REM sleep, and six was deep sleep. Literally every minute for three hours, I would have to score this. As you can imagine, it was very hard to stay awake. But over the course of the summer, I probably did this and collected data for four or five babies. Two or three other volunteers my age did the same, so that over the course of a year or so, 20 babies were studied on this protocol. In November 10, 1983, the results of the study were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm posting a link to the study on our Facebook page, but here's what they found. The infants fed tryptophan entered active sleep 14.1 minutes sooner than they did after Similac and entered quiet sleep 20 minutes sooner. Those fed valine entered active sleep 15.8 minutes later than they did after Similac and entered quiet sleep 39 minutes later. So yes, although the sample group was fairly small, it does appear that the concentration of tryptophan does affect a newborn baby's sleep. Now other studies on breast milk have demonstrated that even without variation in her diet, there are differences in the level of tryptophan in a mom's breast milk with the highest level being present in the evening. Thus, it's been suggested that if a mom pumps and stores her milk, that giving a bottle of breast milk at bedtime that was pumped at another time of the day might have a lower level of tryptophan. And as a result, 
might cause the baby to not sleep as well that night. Now, I really recommend taking all of this with a grain of salt. There's a lot of very sketchy science behind this, but it does kind of make sense. What I'd take away from it is that, if possible, I would try to nurse a baby at bedtime and use bottle feedings or stored breast milk for feedings other than the bedtime meal. Of course, you could go the other way and collect your post-Thanksgiving dinner milk and store that super sleep meal for a night when you really want your baby to snooze. Who knows? It might help. If any of the listeners actually try this, I would love to know if you think it works. Post your research results on our Facebook page and share it with us. And that's your Thanksgiving turkey pediatric fun fact for the day. And now on to the show. My guest today is making her third appearance on the owner's manual. Today we will continue our prior show entitled Pediatric Potpourri by discussing several other common maladies that we often see in the office, especially this time of year. She's my partner in practice and is respected by patients, parents, and colleagues. Since she has already been here twice before, I'll keep her introduction brief. Please welcome once again, Marianne Borden. Welcome, Marianne. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. So today we're going to do another pediatric potpourri because, honestly, that episode is very popular. It sort of becomes a compendium of uh, information that parents can access. So we've got some topics today. So the first topic we're going to discuss is a really common thing that we see in pediatrics, hand, foot, and mouth. Well, it's called hand, foot, and mouth disease, but it's not really a disease. A disease is like serious and chronic, and this is more of a temporary. Yeah, a temporary infection that is pretty common. So let's talk about what that is. How does that present? So we often get phone calls into the office uh, with parents that are really worried because they've been in there's been an exposure in daycare. That's probably one of our more common calls, even before any symptoms have presented with their own child. And something about the name, for some reason, scares people. It sounds like a cattle disease. Exactly. <laughs> people, people call it hoof and mouth disease accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So um, so half of the, the battle is talking people off the ledge that this is a super common pediatric issue and not anything to be overly worried about. It is somewhat miserable to have, but it's it's not life-threatening and it's uh, self-resolving. So how yeah, does and it, rarely complicated. Yeah, and how does it present in kids? So, so often the first sign is poor feeding, um, sores in the mouth if the parents are able to get a look in there. But sometimes the first thing that we hear is that their, their kids have a low-grade fever and are not eating well and, and maybe had an exposure. Um, as the name indicates... Hands, feet, and mouth are where we most commonly see uh, small lesions, kind of small pink dots on the hands and feet, um, little shallow blisters, um, oftentimes on the outside of the mouth, around the lips. Yeah, you can get a rash around the mouth. Yeah, yeah. and in the diaper area. Yes, so it should be called hand, foot, mouth, and butt. Yes. <laughs> because oftentimes the rash on the rear end is more prominent than what you see on the hands and On the and hands feet. and feet, yeah. yep. And you don't have to have all of the, the areas involved. So a lot of times uh, if there's an exposure and, and we know that kids are, are susceptible, they'll, the parents will call and they only have you know a little small rash on the hands or oftentimes isolated to the mouth. And so what do you see in the mouth specifically? So it's pretty shallow 
um, vesicles or ulcers, yeah. tongue inside of the um, the cheeks. And to the back of the mouth, usually at the yeah. roof of the mouth. If you look in there, you'll see red sores. Yep. Yep. Not okay. as painful as they look necessarily. Yep. But painful enough. Yes. So they won't want to eat. And so what do we tell people? How do we uh, get them through this? So it is, it's not an infection that actually usually requires an office visit. Uh, we're happy to see kids with it. Oftentimes, parents really want the reassurance and want us to to diagnose it in the office, which we're happy to do. But it generally uh, is something that that we manage supportively with comfort measures, such as so Tylenol or ibuprofen for pain control if needed, mm -hmm. um, yep. and for the fever if they have a little low grade fever with it, um, and then just real attention to hydration. Yep. So if their appetite stinks for a few days, totally normal. Yeah but we want to just keep the fluids going in so they stay hydrated. Right. And that's the key with most illnesses. Parents tend to be really alarmed in kids who aren't eating well. And an otherwise healthy kid that has a couple of days of poor appetite is going to be just fine. But the hydration, you know, in, in, in 8 to 12 hours, a small body can get dehydrated, which is has its own complications. What's the best way to assess hydration? I think we talked about it in a prior podcast, but for just the, the quick... Parent assessment, is your kid getting enough fluids in? Yeah, so urinating every six to eight hours is a good is a good benchmark. Um, when they cry, are they making tears? Uh, and is the inner part of their mouth nice and moist? Yep. If, if they're really cracked, um, you know, kind of we call it tacky, but, uh, but yeah. you know, sticky inside of the mouth, not crying tears, um, and not urinating, then that would be a sign. But if they're making wet diapers or using the bathroom, even if it's not as much as usual every six hours or so, they're fine. Yeah. 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 And and this is one that, that I always warn parents that most of the time parents are immune to this because they had it as children. Yes. The poor but. unfortunate <laughs> parent that is not immune and gets it is almost invariably more, more miserable than their child is. Yeah. And so having... I've... Definitely. I remember last winter was particularly bad with parents getting it. And I had more than a few like dads who had to take yep. three or four days off of work. One, because their mouth hurts so badly. And two, because they got this rash all over their face like the kids do. And it's really hard to go to work when you've got this thing all over your face and everyone's like, what's that, Bill? Covered in a pediatric rash. Yes. Yeah. And it, it generally the kids tend to sail through it a little, a little easier than their parents do when the parents do get it. And they get the bumps on the hands and the feet, and it's something that we don't oftentimes pay much attention to, but when I've had parents get that, they've told me just how much those bumps actually hurt, hurt them. Yeah. 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 It, they're uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. And um, and then they do tend to kind of peel off over the week or so yep. after the infection, and so they'll look like, you know, kind of little shallow peeling circles on the hands and feet. And that's normal. Totally normal. Yes. And, and in terms of daycare and school exposures, parents are always wondering when they can go back to school. And this is one of those that, you know, if we measured virus, it, it, they could shed the virus for many, many days, if not a couple of weeks. Yeah, you might not actually want the truthful answer to that. Exactly. So what do we tell people, though? So like most pediatric illnesses, um, with some exceptions, uh, 24 hours from the last fever, they are considered safe to return. And when symptoms are improving. Right. So they may still have some bumps on their face or bumps on their hands, but if it seems like their mouth isn't as sore, 
and they're not needing ibuprofen or Tylenol to get them to eat, and it just seems like they're better overall. Yes, yes. Yeah. They still may have a little kind of pink circle lesions, dot lesions on their hands and feet, and yeah. and that in and of itself would not keep them out of school. Um, but yeah, if they're drooling, if they're miserable, if they're uncomfortable, they're certainly not candidates well, to Well, they return. should go to school, one, because they're obviously more contagious at that point. And two, you know, they probably just should be home in their own bed or in Resting. their own house. Yeah. Yeah. Being taken care of. Yeah. The one time I think this is an issue is the virus that causes this, a Coxsackie virus, can be a real issue for a newborn. So not that you want your newborn to get sick, but if you have an older sibling that has this and you've got literally, I'm talking a less than two month old at home, you want to really go all out with the hand washing. Yeah. Yeah, because it can them really it can make a new newborn baby very ill, very ill looking. Yeah, so. yeah. And then the other thing that I kind of occasionally will talk with families about, if the if the mouth sores are incredibly tender and isolated, so we don't have the hands and the feet. There's another virus that um, universally is more miserable. And yes, yes. So primary herpes infection. So the first time that uh, a child is exposed to the herpes virus, they can, not always, but they can get a really, really, really extensive oral blistering involvement that is much, much more uncomfortable in my experience in taking care of kids. It's a good five to seven days of misery. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so how might my baby get herpes, Dr. Borden? How could that happen? Yeah, it scares people. The name in and of itself scares yeah. people. It is a very common and ubiquitous virus that, that a good percentage of, of adults have been exposed to. It's what causes a fever blister. Yes, exactly. So grandma comes over with a fever blister or one of the parents... And I hate to pick on grandma, but one of the parents has a fever blister. And then oftentimes a few days later, you'll see this, but it presents differently the first time, which is right. what you're describing. Right. And not, not everybody gets a very involved primary herpes lesions, but, um, but when you do, it tends to be a longer, um, more miserable course than, than hand, foot and mouth. And fevers? Fevers. Pretty high fevers. Yep. Dehydration is much more likely to happen in a child yep. that has a primary herpes infection than hand, foot, and mouth. Any different management? You know what? Actually, we, we there are antiviral medications that we, not universally, but that we certainly can in kids that are getting dehydrated. If there are immunocompromised family members at home, that one is worth, you know, if you have a child that seems really, really uncomfortable, really refusing to drink and has, has sores in the mouth without having hands and feet involved, that's probably worth at least a call to your doctor's office. I would think so too. And, you know, we... Without doing tests, you kind of can tell clinically the difference. Yeah, they so, look more miserable. Yeah, and more sores in the front of the mouth versus the back of the mouth. So it's something that is worth at least a phone call, if not an office visit, and then hopefully we can provide some medicine that will help to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So anything else about the hand, foot, and mouth and or herpes sores in the mouth thing? No. Again, no. common, not alarming, but... It's got an alarming name. Yeah. It just sounds like a thing. But it really is something that most kids get. Absolutely. Yeah. And can get again. Yeah, there are different strains. So it's not a, like a chicken pox where it's a one and done. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And on to our next topic. And Dr. Borden is a specialist in this, as we joke in the office, croup. So I'll ask my croup specialist, what is croup? So croup is not actually one virus. 
croup is a clint more of a clinical description of inflammation and swelling just around or below the vocal cords and can be caused by a number of different viruses most commonly a, a group of viruses called parainfluenza viruses and how might that present so if your child wakes up from a nap or having gone to sleep an hour or two into their nighttime routine wakes up with a barking seal-like cough that sounds miserable and hurts, you're probably mm -hmm. dealing with croup. And I like to imitate that. I can do my little imitation. Oh, I cannot. Oh, so. it sounds like, arr, 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 sort of. Sort Maybe of? that didn't translate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, translates in the uh, microphone. But um, it's it sounds brassy and barky, like yes, a seal. Like a seal. And then you also have the strider component. Which is so kids will oftentimes sound hoarse in their actual breathing. If that it, it, it is a tough thing to describe, but it, there is a high pitched sound that sounds like a hoarse voice and you hear it with generally as they're taking an inhalation or an inspiration. As opposed to wheezing. And a lot of times people will come in saying that your child is wheezing, but they really have strider. And wheezing is usually, it can be both, but usually it's more with expiration. Exactly. Whereas the croup noise is with inspiration that yes. I call it the Darth Vader sort of noise. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So this presents, it usually presents in the middle of the night. It's not something that usually comes on in the afternoon, although it can. It can. Um, Occasionally that 4 p.m. nap, they'll yeah. wake up from that one. With so it's midnight or two in the morning and um, what to do? Yeah. So generally croup is something that is not emergent, but that is there, there are, there's an asterisk there. So if your child wakes up and is struggling to breathe and, uh, and seems as though they really are working or, um, appear to be having a hard time catching their breath, taking breaths in, um, they need quick attention. Um, the most common scenario that we hear in the emergency room is a child that really looked to be in distress when the child woke up from sleep and improved on the course of the car ride to the emergency so room. So why would it get better between the time that they woke the parents up and the time you got to the emergency room? What's happened? Cool air. Cool air. Yeah. yeah. So and being sit and sitting upright. Sitting upright, yeah. absolutely. So uh, the the narrowest part of the airway happens to be kind of right below the vocal cords, where certain viruses tend to cause the most irritation and yep. inflammation. And so a child that's lying down and has those secretions kind of pooling right there will oftentimes wake up in the worst part of the illness um, when they sit up when they calm down and when they breathe either humidified or ideally kind of cool, moist air, that is very and therapeutic. I think it was two episodes ago for those who are listening consistently to this. I told my pediatric or my parenting horror story about when my son and I got locked out of the house and what I was trying to do at two in the morning while we were outside at two in the morning was because he had croup and I took him out in the cold October air and uh, the rest of the story uh, didn't have to do with the croup, but that's why I went outside at two in the morning with my son. So yes, cool, moist air. Yeah, opening a freezer, yep. um, you know, running a hot, steamy shower, and obviously that's not cool, but but the moisture of the steam from really a shower helps. can be very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And when you present to an emergency room or an urgent care, a lot of times the first thing that they will do is just to literally give you a nebulized 
mask that is just saline, saline to breathe in. It's just moist air. Right, right. Yep. And so, um, so the, the, the real acute management in the first presentation of it is, you know, obviously if your child is in distress, they need medical care. Yeah. But if it's a child that has a barky cough, but that's generally when calm, breathing comfortably, uh, that's not an emergency. Yeah, so you can treat that at home with what we just described. Yep, those supportive measures. Maybe an extra pillow or just propping up the head of the crib. Yep. So that their head is more elevated. A dose of Tylenol or ibuprofen, what, what happens is that it really is an uncomfortable and it, it's a kind of a deep sore throat is the best description. A hoarse, painful throat. Yeah. And, um, and when they are more comfortable and not working to breathe as hard, uh, they look better. And there's an age where this presents usually more acutely. I mean, you don't, you can see croup in a school age kid, although it's usually mild. Yes. But there's an age, it's sort of the 12 to 18 month age is really just having to do with the dynamics of their airway size, how big their voice box is compared to the rest of their airway. That's usually the age that develops the most acute symptoms. Right. And some kids tend to just be more prone to croup. And they probably are ones anatomically that have airways that, just that a are a little smaller. narrow. Yeah. yeah. And so some kids, when they get a cough or get a cold, most colds will cause them to be somewhat croupy. And some kids just don't get this. Even if they get that same virus, they may just have more of a cold presentation. Exactly. And then in the, once you're seen in the office, if someone comes in, what kind of things do we do? Yeah. So, so this is definitely one of those that I think is worth an office visit. Um, now, there are some families that, that are experts at croup because one or several of their children have had multiple illnesses and they certainly can can oftentimes manage this with a phone call to their Yeah, they've been there and done that more than a few times. Yes, and, yeah. And like you described, some people's airways are more narrow and that may run in families. So a family of three kids may be a croupy family. Yes, yeah. they may be they may be experts. Um, so but but what we do in the office is obviously assess to make sure that that this is croup and that the child is not in any distress and that their airway seems to be open and, and clear. Uh, and then we have medicines, steroids, that actually we use pretty frequently mm -hmm. um, in croup illnesses to, does not treat the virus in any way, shape, or form, but reduces the inflammation right around that, that narrow airway and can really control symptoms and, and keep kids out of emergency rooms. Pretty quickly. So if someone comes in in the morning having had a horrible night and we push, put them on the steroids, usually by that night, their symptoms will be minimal. Yes. Yeah, it really, over the course of just one day or 12 hours or so, yeah. they'll have significant relief. So that's something and they, that's worthwhile. They still may very well have low-grade fevers or even higher fevers. They still may be quite uncomfortable and... and, and it, dealing with the virus, but the airway will be notably better. And they do tend, you know, the steroid has the the side effect of a little bit of hyperactivity in a lot of kids. So they yes. tend to actually <laughs> perk up very well after that dose yeah. of steroid. Yeah. Now there's an illness. I think you're just young enough that you kind of missed this curve. I did. But when I was a medical student and a resident, no, actually I would say just a medical student, um, there's another very serious illness that can present very similarly that we really, if, you're, if you have a vaccinated child, we don't have to think about, and that's epiglottitis. 
No, Which I have never so actually So that's actually a trivia seen. question. I have never seen it either, although we were very vigilant looking for it during medical school and residency. And there's really one bacteria that causes epiglottitis, Haemophilus influenza B, and that's the Hib vaccine that babies get at two, four, six, and usually, you know, 15 months or so. Um, and so just a little bit of trivia from my perspective is they started giving that vaccine to babies literally the month I finished medical school. Interesting. So the, like the month I graduated from medical school, Hib infections, which that bacteria causes um, epiglottitis, but also caused, was the leading cause of meningitis in children, um, just went away. And it's amazing. So now we see a kid who's croupy. And, and we, we know it's croup. We really know it's croup. And if the child is fully vaccinated. 25 right. years ago or so, or 30 years ago, maybe it's almost that. Um, it, we really had to make sure it was that. And there were things we'd do. And kids would usually drool more and couldn't swallow when they had epiglottitis. But um, so all the more reason to have your kid vaccinated, of course. Um, but it's something in a vaccinated kid because that vaccine is so effective that we don't really have to think about. But right. you know, medicine has changed in that way. And also because the benefit of the herd immunity that even in a, in a newborn or in a younger child that hasn't had their full series of the Hib, we still really don't, don't see any significant yeah. hemophilus infections from this particular yeah, strain. But it's amazing that that really is something that is something that pediatricians don't have to think hard about now. Right. Whereas years ago we did. I just literally trained, I'm just old enough that I saw that and uh, don't have to think about it now. That's great. Yeah. All right, on to the next topic, sort of related to respiratory stuff like croup. We're going to talk about RSV. So what is this RSV thing that we hear about? <laughs> so RSV is another virus, respiratory syncytial virus, and, um, and this is it, why we call it RSV. Exactly, because yes. it's much easier to say. <laughs> um, it is a common uh, wintertime, you know, kind of late fall wintertime virus that uh, tends to cause the most problems in smaller children because, mm -hmm. again, anatomically, their airways are smaller. And where does this virus tend to do its thing. Yeah, this is kind of more of a medium airway yeah. virus. So, um, so Which it is, is the syncytial part, but that <laughs> people don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. So unlike croup, which really the, those viruses tend to be ones that, that cause that kind of upper part of the trachea, the most irritation, these are a little bit deeper. Uh, where the virus attacks is a little bit deeper in the airway and uh, causes similarly a lot of inflammation and a lot of mucus production. A lot of mucus production. So yes. you do see like the nose of a kid with RSV runs Good like point. a faucet. Yes. Um, and that does cause a great deal of their symptoms too because Absolutely. when your nose is that plugged, it's hard to breathe. Yes. But then in the lungs, it's awful. Yeah, a lot of swelling and a lot of mucus production. And again, in an older child, um, they have larger airways and they're able generally to, to clear them effectively and be relatively minimally affected. So if an older kid or an adult, it's a bad cold. Right. But Absolutely. when your airways are little and there's a lot of mucus, it really causes a problem. Yeah. And, um, and it is also an infection that has evolved a lot because uh, we have a lot better management just in general of, um, of babies that are most prone to RSV infections, which are preemies. 
Um, and there's also a, a treatment, kind of a preventative treatment for kids that are at really high risk. So our micropremie or our, um, chronic lung disease kiddos tend to have an added protection. It's a passive immunization. So unlike most injections where you're injecting something and the body makes a response, this is literally antibodies against against the RSV against the RSV virus. Yeah, that you have to. There's certain protocols for who gets it. You have to be prema- a certain amount of prematurity, so a slightly preterm baby wouldn't qualify. Would not qualify. And, but babies who do qualify get it monthly. Throughout the, RSV season. The, yeah. Right. And so, um, so but for, for the vast majority of, of babies that do get RSV, they are not considered in that high-risk category. And so it presents similarly initially to a common cold with a lot of runny nose, clear you know, kind of copious discharge from the nose, cough and fever. And, um, and the distinction for us in the office is it sounds different than most colds do. Yes, it do. does. Yeah. How does it sound? They sound, I mean, parents will sometimes describe that it sounds like a washing machine. Yeah. And it's, that's, that's honestly fairly similar to what we hear when we listen with the stethoscope. There's... It's, I describe it as almost being like when you get to the bottom of the milkshake and there's just like a bubbly, foamy sound when you're sipping with a straw. Yeah. It's just gurgly and... Crunchy yeah. a little bit and, and wheezy. Yeah. And it's hard to miss. It's, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and so, um, so when we listen, we can fairly... And we don't conclusively in our office just by listening know that it's RSV. Um, the term that we use to describe what we're hearing is bronchiolitis. Or Which is different than bronchitis. Bronchiolitis is those smaller Those smaller airway. airways, yeah. yep. And so um, so that sound is is fairly typical. And, um, and during the winter season, if we hear that bronchiolytic or bronchiolitis um, picture, we assume it's likely RSV. You treat it the same whether it is or it isn't, really. Absolutely. Yeah, so. yeah there, there are, this is one that does not have any specific medication. There's not a, again, the, the, the preventative medication or injection is different than um, there, there isn't any antiviral medication for RSV. Yeah. And so we treat supportively, meaning we try to keep the secretions as thinned out and as out of the the nose as possible. So mm-hmm. lots of suctioning. Um, and again, humidified air. Absolutely. So, you know, you're putting a vaporizer or a humidifier in your child's room, if just helps to thin the mucus and really helps. Yeah, hot steamy showers before yep. putting them down, yep. that type of, of uh, kind of supportive care. Um, and some some babies or toddlers with RSV will respond well to um, inhaled medications. Uh, like albuterol. Yeah, exactly. So some wheeze from it, some are just full of junk. Right, right. Yeah. And um, and those that wheeze and respond well in the office to um, the nebulized albuterol solution, we oftentimes will send home with that um, as a supportive care measure. Yep. And so a lot of times we'll just try it and see if it helps. Yep. And if it helps, we'll send them home with one. And if it doesn't, we'll say, okay, supportive care. Right. Yeah. And um, and and really small babies, if they are inflamed enough and and working hard enough, occasionally will need to be admitted to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And the hospital really, what they have that that parents don't have at home is high tech suctioning. Yep. And so those babies get a lot of airway management with suctioning and sometimes oxygen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you need oxygen 
more than what's in the air, you need to be in the hospital. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but again, there's the, other than, you know, if they need to be getting nebulized medications on a more regular basis, the hospital can do that, yeah. the oxygen, and then really just kind of controlling that, that mucus secretion so that, that we get babies over that acute illness of three yeah. to five days. But it's different than like if you have pneumonia and get put in the hospital and okay, you're there for the respiratory support, but we're also giving you this strong IV antibiotic that's going to kill this germ. And so you'll be better in a few days. And it's really frustrating both, I think, from the patient's standpoint, the parents, and from the doctor's standpoint, you put them in there and you're just waiting for the body to fight it off. To fight and, off the virus, And there's right. not a treatment other than the supportive care to make it go away any faster, right. whether you're in the hospital or not. And it so sometimes three to five days in the hospital for a small baby, but the length of time that a child or a toddler who maybe isn't sick enough to get put in the hospital has this for, it's not like a cold where you're better in a week. No, I mean, we can, we can see persistent coughing, um, for long, yes, for weeks, 10, 14 plus days yeah. for sure. And then sometimes there's even a certain amount of reactivity that their lungs have. So even though they're over the RSV, their lungs may be more easily irritated by the next cold. Right. And maybe need a nebulizer for a period of time afterwards exactly. when they get sick. So it can go on for the whole winter, really. After that as, one initial yeah. insult, right. And now we don't we don't expect things like fever to last beyond that kind of acute three to five. I mean, occasionally a couple more days than that for the fever. But yeah, that, that persistent coughing, that propensity to wheeze um, can, can really become an issue throughout the rest of that season. Yeah. And so just giving people perspective that like even when they're better, they're not they may not be all the way better. And sometimes we'll see kids back three or four times, even though they're doing fine, but just because the parents are worried that they're still coughing a bit. Yeah. 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 And we do, especially in the smaller babies, sometimes we will see them a couple days in the row in the office just to make sure that they're not um, getting kind of more inflamed and having a harder time uh, processing all of that. Because they can get worse. Oh, yeah. 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 The first couple of days in a smaller baby, they require a lot of monitoring and observation. Yep. Well, great. So as far as all three things we've talked about with um, the croup, the RSV, and then circling back to hand, foot, and mouth, I mean, prevention as far as how do you keep your kids from getting this? And really all three things, what they do have in common is they're primarily transmitted by touch. So hand washing. Yeah. And in a daycare setting, that's oh, a hard, that's a that's hard, a hard ask. But, but in general, as far as like if you have a kid in your home, say they're homesick and you're trying to minimize transmission, if you've got a newborn at home or whatever, it's just a whole lot of hand washing and some hand sanitizer, but just yeah, really paying attention to that. Yeah, really, really good hand washing is definitely in, in a home environment, something that you have more control over. Um, in the middle of the winter, if you do have a newborn at home, you know, kind of limiting the number of people that are in and out of the house with... You know, yeah. certainly nobody with illnesses should right. be should, should be, be coming anywhere in. near your house. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, it, the the school environment. You know, I always reassure parents when they've come in for their third or fourth viral infection in a season that ultimately it's good for the immune system to be exposed to all of these things. It's what I tell people certainly to try to help them feel like they're achieving something by going through all this. Um, but it's frustrating to have your kids sick that often, but that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah especially and between like October and April, that's, that's the golden flu season. And that's when we're busier here, but that's when your kid's going to get sick from school. Right. 
And we oftentimes will have parents that'll come in on the third or fourth illness really concerned that their child has something wrong with their immune system. And, um, you know, there certainly are the rare cases where we are worried about a child's immune system, kids that require hospitalization for IV antibiotics multiple occasions that can can be a sign that, that their immune system is not fighting off these these infections as well as we want them to. Uh, but for the most part, kids that come in on their third, fourth, fifth virus of, of a bad winter season, yeah. um, that's really common. The immune system gets a little worn down with the first illness and and they get exposed to the next one sure. when they go back to school. And it just hits them again. I remember learning years ago that the average toddler gets six to eight viral illnesses a year. And most of those are going to be focused in the you know cold and flu season months. And if your kid's in daycare, they may have more than that. Right. So that's almost a constant illness. Yeah. I, I usually say, like, in the winter, if you have a, a day when your child does not have a runny or crusty nose or, or isn't coughing, you should take a picture of that because you may not see that for you a while. You may not. Uh, yeah, a child in daycare, absolutely. And the other call that, that we get a lot in our office, as and just as a cautionary tale to, to parents with older kids, is that... Your kids go to school probably with, with lots of children that might have newborns at home, newborn siblings, and we'll often get a call from a parent that says that their child has a terrible sore throat or a terrible cough and a fever, and when we offer a morning appointment, they say, oh, no, they're at school. Right. And uh, <laughs> This gives us a little pause. Yeah. If your child has a fever the night before or wakes up in the morning with a fever and you give them some Tylenol and drop them off at school, um, we, we understand the, the pressure, but... Um, but but they're getting their classmates sick and they are and so when your child actually has the fever is when they're the most contagious and you're sent just because you give them a medication to mask that fever doesn't mean that they're really better at all no and they're still just as contagious and you know when a kid is sick like that like i said earlier one they should be home because you don't want to it's a you know the community part of the being the community and not spread that germ but two your kid's not feeling well. They should be at home in their own, you know, bed or on their own couch. Recovering. Um, yeah, and that's really hard when you're a working parent, but um, it's just the reality of how it is. Yep. Yep. Well, Marianne, thank you for doing this again. This has been another My great pleasure. potpourri. I know that uh, the audience listeners will um, learn a lot from all this information, and um, just really appreciate you coming in, taking the time, and. Uh, Explain to us about these three common illnesses. Common winter illnesses. Yep. Get ready, because it's coming. They're coming. All right. And now let's take a brief break. When we return, we'll hear this week's question from a listener. And we're back. Before we proceed with the next segment, I want to remind all the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. In addition, if you'd like to contribute to our segment, Parenting Horror Stories, you can also use this number. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. Call in with your question or horror story for the show. You can also contact us on our Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions or stories and idea topics for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. This week, we do not have a parenting horror story to share. People are being bashful. 
So if you like this segment, I'm calling on listeners once again to call the phone in line to tell your story or your question. And now for this week's phone-in question. Hi, Dr. Nash. This is Bridget from Alamo, mother of four-year-old Holt and 15-month-old Callan, two boys, as you know. (laughs) So I have a question regarding my 15-month-old who seems to always get very flushed and red on his cheeks when he's eating. So I'm curious if this is a sign of an allergy to food. It doesn't seem to happen to with any specific food. It just seems to happen kind of generally when he's eating. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for calling, Bridget. Interesting question. So how do you tell if a rash in your child's face is from a food allergy or from something else? Well, to start, there are some foods that are generally higher risk that would increase my level of suspicion. Peanuts or nuts in general Eggs, wheat, and shellfish, and so on, are all the foods that are more commonly associated with food allergies. Of course, an individual can be allergic to virtually any food, but this list of food is certainly more common. Normally with an allergy, the rash would start within a few minutes of eating the food. They might get a facial rash or maybe some lip swelling the first few times they were exposed, but the rash would usually spread to the entire body and look more like hives before too long. The fact that your child gets facial flushing and it hasn't progressed or worsened over time makes it very unlikely to be any kind of allergy. Some kids do get flushed in the face when they're excited. Just like some people can get red in the face when they're angry or when they're embarrassed, facial flushing can be a response to a variety of emotions. It's very possible that the excitement or joy of eating might be sufficient to trigger this in your child. Likely, this response will fade as he gets older. I don't think you'll be getting flushed when he eats lunch at school. In any event, there's nothing harmful about the flushing. It certainly doesn't indicate any kind of abnormality or disease process, and I wouldn't worry about it. And that's our show for the day. I hope you enjoyed it. I would really like to thank Dr. Mary Ann Borden for taking the time to talk to us once again about hand, foot, and mouth, croup, and RSV. I think that the Pediatric Potpourri series of shows is adding to the information base available for parents to manage common illnesses that their children will likely experience over time. I'm hoping that with this information, parents can feel more comfortable doing what they need to do to get their child through illnesses and minimize visits to the urgent care clinic or emergency department. So until next time, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you and your child good health, and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the owner's manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The owner's manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the owner's manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, M.D. and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.